Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi, I'm Luke Moffat, Senior Lecturer here at the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast, researching on reparations and victims in transitional societies. And so today we're joined by Dr. James Gallen from Dublin City University, who's one of the leading experts on institutional abuse and transitional justice. And so today we're hoping to have a bit of a conversation around some of these issues. And uh, James can speak to his expertise in this area. Thanks, Luke. It's great to be here. Um, so originally my research interest was in transitional justice, which as typically understood involves either post-conflict or post-authoritarian societies. But in recent years, a number of uh, wealthy consolidated democracies have started to investigate uh, widespread or systemic crimes uh, of their past. And uh, both scholars, activists and governments are now using transitional justice as a, both a discourse and an evaluative tool to consider how best to respond to, to legacies of past violence. So for the last, uh, I suppose, 30 years, um, countries in the common law world or the English speaking world have been looking at legacies, particularly of, of residential institutions. Uh, where various categories of people uh, who were seen as being vulnerable uh, or in need of social protection were, were housed. But uh, despite these noble intentions, ultimately these groups were subject to uh, quite severe human rights uh, violations. So we can see this kind of trend emerging from Canada, the United States, Australia, um, the Scandinavian and Nordic countries and, and in Ireland and the United Kingdom um, as well. Uh, so we've seen a real proliferation of investigations uh, into these uh, forms of harm, uh, starting with child sexual abuse and the physical abuse of children, and now extending into uh, more co more complex and diverse forms of harm. So we're looking at issues such as the forced adoption of children, uh, forced medical experimentation, um, forced medical procedures such as some physiotomy uh, across a range of, of jurisdictions. Um, and I suppose we're, transitional justice is adding value. Uh, by trying to provide coherence uh, to this process and, and, and give um, some sort of shared themes uh, to what can seem quite a confusing and diverse uh, range of political and legal processes. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have you know heard in the news different stories mm. and issues that came out, but maybe for those people who aren't familiar, and, and even from talking to you in the past, and maybe you want to talk about the scale, which even I find surprising, and even just in the Republic of Ireland. Yeah, so the, I mean, the, what attracted me to the area first was the intuition that these crimes had occurred in a systematic fashion. Um, so there was some degree of either design or willful neglect uh, uh, in terms of the scale, the scale of abuse of, of, of children and vulnerable people. And then that this pattern was replicated across a number of jurisdictions. So in the Irish context, um, the Ryan report, which looked at uh, investigations into um, uh, abuse in residential school uh, schools, industrial uh, and reformatory schools, says the abuse was endemic. So the numbers of children involved is about 300,000 over a 50-year uh, period. Uh, about 1,000 adult survivors of child abuse uh, gave testimony to uh, that commission. 
and uh, that's mirrored then in other uh, arenas as well. Um, investigations into uh, clerical sex abuse in sort of um, non-residential settings, diocesan settings, demonstrates the abuse is widespread. There is a pr- practice of moving abusers around that occurred uh, nationwide, and indeed we see abusers being moved from one jurisdiction to another, the most famous example being Father Brendan Smith abusing in at least three jurisdictions. Um, so I wrote a piece a number of years ago that suggested uh, the abuse should be viewed globally uh, as being part of a uh, widespread and systemic process, uh, particularly because this abuse often has emanated from a combination of state and church-run institutions, and particularly in higher levels of uh, church hierarchy that there would have been awareness uh, or notice uh, of this abuse taking place and a failure to to respond to that or to, to manage that, and in some instances uh, actions undertaken to, to cover up um, such abuse demonstrate that it's 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 widespread and systemic. So one estimate shows, on on the uh, child abuse alone, that we're speaking about uh, 100 to 200,000 uh, victims globally uh, within the 20th century. Um, if we were to extrapolate that further in terms of the type of abuse experienced by Aboriginal uh, peoples in Canada and Australia, we're, we're moving up uh, again uh, into multiples of hundreds of thousands. Um, in regards to other forms of abuse. Uh, so the, the arbitrary detention and forced labour of individuals, uh, the minimum figure in the Irish context, for instance, of women detained in Magdalen laundries is 14,000 or so, uh, which is contested by the civil society groups. Uh, there's a current inquiry uh, investigating practices in mother and baby homes. And one allegation that's been made in that setting is that at least 3,000 children have been forcibly or illegally adopted uh, to the United States from from Ireland without the consent or the meaningful consent of, of their mothers. So it's not a small-scale process, even if these figures are historically contested or challenged, which is one of the kind of key themes, I think, in investigating something that's occurred so long in the past. Um, so it could be upwards of 50, 60 years, particular instances of abuse. So even if people quibble with the figures, um, it's plausible given the degree of, of correlation and the degree of sort of um, support for these testimonies that we're talking, something that's, that's really significant. And to my mind, then, really goes to the core of what Western consolidated states, so Britain, Ireland, Canada, the US, the core of their national identity. These are, you know, to borrow religious language, part of the original sin of, of these jurisdictions, particularly their founding myths in a post-colonial setting. And it's, it's key to me, I think, that we have a meaningful national conversation around these issues that doesn't just stop at saying, well, the church is bad, so we'll stop going to mass and that's the end of the issue, but rather says, well, to what extent are the was society responsible for these issues as well as institutions and individuals? And to what extent have we learned from these mistakes? Or are we, in fact, repeating forms of exclusion, uh, shaming, uh, and um, forms of harm uh, today? So a number of uh, weeks ago, I attended a memorialization event at the last remaining uh, Magdalen Laundry uh, in Dublin on Sean McDermott Street. And after a number of elderly former residents had given their testimony, a young um, woman of African origin got up and said, well, I'm living in direct vision in Ireland. And so Ireland is still institutionalizing and excluding people that it sees as social problems. They're just out of sight, out of mind. And obviously the two issues and contexts are widely different. But to my mind, it really demonstrates that if we don't learn socially and politically from 
the failures of the past and the harms of the past, then, then we are at serious risk of, of repeating them in the future. Um, and I think you know, unlike in mainstream transitional justice settings where you might have very large national conversations about political violence, about the role of the state and uh, the rights and wrongs of conflict, the discussion around historical institutional abuse has been remarkably quiet in terms of asking these bigger uh, national questions. Uh, and I'm concerned with that uh, quietness because I think it reinforces uh, the control of shame or the control of uh, contempt uh, that uh, ha seem to be an influencing factor in creating these harms that people placed children, placed women uh, in institutions because they were ashamed that they didn't fit a, a set of uh, cultural assumptions about what a family should look like or what religion expected of, of a family. So single mothers were excluded. Uh, um, women who were seen as sexually promiscuous uh, without motherhood uh, were often were detained in Magdalene laundries or in um, mother and baby homes. So there's a whole range of very personal and very deep cultural reasons and baggage uh, that I think if we don't talk about, we'll really miss an opportunity to, to honor those who've suffered and, and respect their experience and learn from their experience, but also to, to transform as a uh, society and as a, as a culture on, on these issues. Uh, so for me, uh, looking at these issues through a transitional justice lens gives you the, the toolkit to assess the interests of state, states in dealing with these issues? Do they want to maintain the status quo and placate those who are advocating for change? Do they want to engage in more transformative behaviors, reform their own institutional structures, their relationship with other organs of, of power? Um, and how is this manifested in, in law and in, in political expression, political apology and, and, and so on? And how is this manifested socially? How are people organizing themselves uh, to deal with these issues and how is that being either supported um, from civil society uh, or being curtailed uh, as well? So there's a whole range of, of issues, I think, which makes it a really uh, ripe context, uh, but also a very urgent context because the people involved are uh, very elderly. And um, unfortunately, um, people are often dying before they see what they consider to be to be justice. A quote from a gentleman looking for his mother, who he believed was in a, a mother and baby home recently, saying, I don't want um, to uh, come in contact with the gravestone. I want to come in contact with a, a real person and have, have that relationship for however long it lasts. So although these issues are very um, uh, historic, uh, they're also very timely for, for the people affected. Yeah, yeah, uh, as, as it really sort of um, captures the the scale just in one country mm -hmm. um, and the challenges they're in, and and even in Northern Ireland in terms of trying to deal with like in a small country, mm -hmm. we've had the historical institutional abuse inquiry, um, and we've done that, but the recommendations for that haven't been properly implemented, and there's been victims there who've recently been calling for it and have died before see anything done even just in a few months what in Ireland is being done now that this is coming to light in trying to deal with uh, the scale of this harm so what tends to have happened in in Ireland and it's replicated elsewhere is because of the scale being so large states have both justifiably and perhaps in their own interests adopted a piecemeal approach so it's been to focus on specific institutions uh, for inquiry and for forms of redress such as compensation or acknowledgement 
Um, but uh, so we've looked starting off at child sexual abuse in a residential setting. Then we examined it in a uh, clerical or diocesan setting, moved to examining uh, the forced labor and detention of women in Magdalen laundries and currently looking at the, the mother and baby home issue. So it's institution by institution. And there's been a very uneven uh, process uh, with that. Some of those inquiries have had public hearings, have had significant resources attached to them. But if we look at the trend over time, so the the um, uh, Ryan inquiry uh, being the first, each of the inquiries has got successively cheaper and the nature of the process has become successively more uh, private and more controlled um, by uh uh, the Irish state. Um, so there's been less participation and ownership of, of victims and survivors. So on the one hand, you can appreciate the need to break this up into sort of manageable chunks from an institutional perspective. But on the other hand, uh, there is a risk, I suppose, uh, that uh, people become increasingly dissatisfied with a closed process. And there's also a risk that those uh, pieces don't tell the whole story. So in my work, I've come across a number of individuals who have suffered multiple forms of harm from multiple forms of institutions. It may be that somebody was growing up in an industrial or residential school, became 18, went to a Magdalene laundry, suffered sexual violence, became pregnant, went to a mother and baby home. And so they might be someone who experiences the full range of, of historical institutional abuse. And that story doesn't uh, uh, get captured or isn't presented, I think, in the way we're telling it at present. And as a result, I think there is a concern among advocates that the public perception or the, the history might record a series of discrete institutions that dealt with uh, various different groups that, that never the two should meet, whereas the lived experience of, of the people concerned uh, that I've uh, met and dealt with seems to suggest that actually these things interacted. Uh, sometimes they shared the same physical site, sometimes they were closely proximate and had uh, significant correspondence and, and, and cooperation. So I think that's important. The other thing that's distinctive about how states have dealt with this issue is it's often been without acknowledgement, and Ireland would fit it within this, of their legal responsibilities. So Ireland has had a redress board scheme since 2002 for residential schools, but it's an ex gratia scheme, so it's without admission of legal responsibility. And it's replicated that model on smaller scales for other forms of abuse. So we had a quirk scheme after Justice Quirk in the Magdalene context, a uh, brief scheme for survivors of the medical procedure of some physiotomy, and all of these forms of compensation payments to victims and survivors are without admission of the fact that anybody, I think, did anything wrong. So there's a political uh, separation of questions of apology or questions of uh, responsibility from an administrative process that offers people a uh, form of cash payment uh, to, to acknowledge in some limited way their, their experience. And when teaching, I describe this as sort of one of those fake apologies you may give to your friends, which is to say, I'm sorry if you feel bad. I'm sorry if you think that way, rather than I'm sorry uh, it was my fault. I should have present prevented the harm from taking place. And this is uh, to acknowledge my failure. Uh, so my concern would be that we will have spent 30 years billions of, of euro and will be left with a process that does not satisfy victims and survivors, does not impact on society uh, more generally, 
and leaves the state and church uh, apparatus uh, largely untransformed, but also dissatisfied with having to go through this process. So it seems to be one that risks not um, benefiting any one constituency to, to any great extent. And I think that would be an awful waste of, of time and, and energy. Yeah, yeah no, that, that's, that's a really good capture of what's going on. Um, and I suppose uh, you've written a lot on this, um, and particularly I really enjoyed your article in the International Journal of Transitional Justice called uh, Jesus Wept. Um, it's, it's very powerful and sort of tees out some of these debates. Um, I think maybe as, as a finishing point, is there anywhere where people who are interested in this should uh, find out more information um, or anywhere you would direct them to, any sort of resources on that? I think what I would encourage people to do is to promote the voices of those who've been ignored for for so long. So to do that, I would encourage them to seek out the voices of uh, victims and survivors and to do so, look for uh, those groups online um, who who are reflecting their stories today. So there's a number of avenues for for doing that. There's a Justice for Magdalene's group. Uh, which is collaborating um, with the Adoption Rights Alliance on a project called uh, the CLAN, Irish word for family project, designed to help uh, women who were in institutional settings uh, tell their story in a, in a collective way so that whatever the outcome of the ongoing uh, commission of investigation into mother and baby homes, there is a collective oral history and narrative uh, there. Uh, I would encourage people to seek out the survivor groups for clerical sexual abuse uh, and look at their data and their reports uh, nationally. Uh, so one in four um, in the Irish context and, and internationally as well to show the scale of the issue. So the survivors network, uh, those abused by priest or SNAP, which people might be familiar for, familiar with, excuse me, from the Spotlight movie, uh, have wonderful resources that show kind of the diverse national experiences and the central role of um, of religion in the Catholic Church in, in this setting. And uh, to I think just to, to, to we read widely, because these issues come up periodically uh, in the press, whether it's uh, the HIA in Northern Ireland or, or uh, TUM, for instance, in, in um, the Republic. Um, but to try and consistently look at these issues, because I think the risk is that we uh, have moments of... Um, of outcry or of, of um, uh, hysteria, and then we go back to our lives unchanged. And uh, I think the the opportunity is for us to, to use those moments uh, to really consider what type of, of country we are and countries we are and um, what steps we can take to, to change that. Yeah, no, I, I, I fully agree. I think it's a wider problem in transitional justice because it's about the struggle. Mm. So the struggle for those who are marginalised, forgotten, victimised, to get acknowledgement and sort of awaken society that it doesn't happen again and maybe to alleviate you know, some of the suffering that has been caused. So uh, thanks so much, James. That has been incredibly um, comprehensive and uh, engaging and we hope to have you back up soon in Belfast. Thanks very much for your time. Cheers. Thanks. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville and Rachel Colleen. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle, and we are funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Luke Moffat and James Gann for this episode. You can follow us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at QUB LawPod. You can also find us on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Rachel Colleen. This was LawPod.